0: So in December of 2021, just a few months ago, occurred one of the worst storms to hit our country. The tornado has been dubbed the Quad State Tornado, and some have estimated that it was on the ground for nearly 200 miles, and it spanned across four states. Arkansas, Tennessee, Missouri, and our home state, my home state of Kentucky. uh, Making it one of the longest recorded tornado paths in history. The tornado ultimately... Killed 90 people, 76 in Kentucky, and then 22 in my hometown of Mayfield, Kentucky. A few days after the tornado hit, a rooftop and I named Flint, we headed back to Mayfield to help with some cleanup, and we saw street after street of homes and businesses just lay completely flattened and smashed and hideously misshapen. Endless piles of rubble and bricks that used to be homes. One Mayfield resident said this, the tornado was something that you just couldn't believe the strength of it. I could feel something being sucked off the building. It went dead silent and then people were screaming and hollering and crying. Of the 22 killed, many were children. Right before Christmas, the families are left with destroyed piles of bricks that used to be homes haunted by memories of the night that they lost everything. Currently, there are 600 people homeless because of this storm. As Flint and I drove into Mayfield, we topped this hill that overlooks much of the city, and all that we saw was complete devastation. And I couldn't help but think, God, why did you allow this to happen? I'm not alone in thinking that. Barna Research Group conducted a study and they asked Americans, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And the number one response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? More than likely, you have thought something similar as you sit in a hospital chair looking at someone you love fighting for their life. Or as you sit in the doctor's office and the doctor tells you that the cancer is terminal. Or as you sit in a funeral of someone that you love dearly. Your mom, your dad, your child. Or as you turn on the news and see a tsunami wipe out 225,000 people in India. Or as you see planes flying in and Smashing into buildings, killing thousands of people. As you learn about the atrocities committed at the hands of the Nazis, 11 million men, women, and children were killed in concentration camps. Why are there an estimated 25 million victims of human trafficking globally right now? Why does a child die of starvation every five seconds? God... Why do you allow this? So these past few weeks in preparation for this message, I have wrestled with God. I've cried, I've prayed, I've doubted, and I've believed. The question of how could a loving God exist and we still see the horrible atrocities in our world, has been one that I have liked to push away for most of my Christian life. But in order to be intellectually honest, I have read some of the leading critical scholars on this subject. My faith has been stretched to the point of almost breaking while researching for this message. And we're in week six of our sermon series called Six Reasons. Six Reasons I Might Lose My Faith and Six Reasons I Won't. This series is part of our desire here at Rooftop to be a place where people can come safely with doubts, with concerns, with questions, but also be a place where people are built up in their faith as disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So this morning, you may be a skeptic in here, you may be a skeptic watching online, and we're so excited that you would tune in with us, we're so excited that you would come, Um, and I'm sure you have well-thought-out, perhaps rational objections to Christianity. And so in this series, we want to thoughtfully and graciously engage with those critiques and objections. Maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're a believer, but you're struggling with doubt. Or maybe you're a believer and you don't really know how to answer tough questions when your friends or family ask. Well, Peter tells us, Everyone should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so my prayer is that you are sharpened in this series and that your faith is built up. Because we as Christians do not have a naive faith based on a paper-thin foundation of wishful thinking. We have a faith that is consistent with reason, not contradictory to it. We have beliefs that are grounded in reality, not detached from it. And so we as the pastoral staff, we, want, we believe this and we believe that our faith can stand up to scrutiny and we want to provide you with the confidence to believe that as well. And so we pride ourselves here at Rooftop for being fun and creative, but at the same time, theologically robust. And so we don't want to shortchange you at all. So we've taken this series very seriously and included some of the best objections to faith in Jesus, even the ones that we like to push forward away, like the one we're going to talk about this morning. So the claim, unjust suffering proves that an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving God does not exist. Bart Ehrman is one of, is an author of, of more than 20 books, Um, He is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is a leading authority on the Bible and the life of Jesus, and he is an atheist. In the introduction of his book, God's Problem, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer, he talks about um, how he was a born-again Christian, Um, had an experience at a youth group. Uh, He even got baptized and he felt called to ministry, but then later he would go on to leave the faith. And this is the text that I'm gonna engage with the most this morning. But he felt called to ministry. He attended prestigious Christian schools. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He went to Wheaton College. He learned Greek. He earned a master's degree. And then he got a PhD in New Testament studies from Princeton. This is what he writes. I realized I could no longer reconcile the claims with the facts of life. Have you ever felt that? I could no longer explain how there could be a good and all-powerful God actively involved in the world, given the state of how things are. For many people who inhabit the planet, life, he says, is a cesspool of misery and suffering. The problem of suffering became, for me, the problem of of faith, he writes. He later goes on and said, "'Suffering increasingly became a problem for me in my faith. How can one explain all the pain and misery in the world if God, the creator and redeemer of all, is sovereign, exercising his will both on the grand scheme and in the daily workings of our life? Why is there such rampant starvation in the world? Why are there droughts? Why are there epidemics, hurricanes, earthquakes? If God answers prayers, why didn't he answer the prayers of the faithful Jews during the Holocaust?' Or the faithful Christians who also suffered torment and death at the hands of Nazis. We live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every five seconds, every minute, there are 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour, 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all of this? Where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop. Where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects. And then he asks, where's God? Because he couldn't reconcile the state of things, as he puts it, suffering, rape, famine, genocide, and the supposed loving character of God, Ehrman, left the faith. And I don't want to demonize Bart Ehrman. He asks a fair question here. And I've read some of his work. He's very thoughtful and he's very clever. And perhaps he just gave words to the questions you have. Perhaps he has voiced exactly what you think and what you feel. Why would an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God allow such evil and suffering to exist in the world? Why does God allow car crashes to kill teenagers? Babies to die in their mother's arms? People to starve, cancer to spread, homicide, genocide, disease and viruses to kill millions of people. If God is so good, why are things so bad? Perhaps you have wondered that. Perhaps he doesn't exist. This is the conclusion that Bart Ehrman and many other people have come to. Perhaps if you're a skeptic, that's the conclusion you've come to. Or perhaps you're a Christian and you are are, are wrestling with this and you're teetering on the fence of unbelief because of this problem. Because it is a problem. Ehrman is no slouch, right? He holds degrees, again, from Moody, Princeton, Wheaton. Has a PhD in New Testament. I'm no slouch either, but I do admit, I feel like I'm punching a bit above my weight class this morning. I respect Airman, but I vehemently disagree with him on this subject. So for any of you out there who thought I was about to renounce my faith because of that intro, I'm not. Still a Christian. I want to engage with the skeptical claim that suffering proves that an all-loving, all-powerful God does not exist. Despite the horrible atrocities that happen, I want to give a thoughtful and considerate rebuttal and explain how I resolve this as a Christian and why I have not left my faith over this as many people have. So what exactly is the problem of evil? We're going to put a slide up and we're going to walk through it together. If God is all good, then he has the desire to eliminate evil. Make sense? sense? If God is all-powerful, then he is able to eliminate evil, right? Makes sense? If God is all-knowing, then he knows the evil exists and he knows how to eliminate it, right? Therefore, if God exists and is all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing, then evil should not exist, but evil exists. Therefore, the skeptic would claim an all-good, all-powerful, all-loving God cannot. Skeptics, like Ehrman, would say that maybe on their own, maybe God's good, but he can't be all-powerful, he can't be all-knowing. Maybe God's powerful, but he can't be all-knowing and all-good. Maybe he's all-knowing, but he can't be all-powerful, he can't be all-good. They can't be all true at the same time. There seems to be a contradiction These three things, he claims, can't be all true at the same time, all the time. If one's true, it makes the others false. If there's an all-knowing God, then he would presumably know about the evil before it happens. If he's all-powerful, he would uh, be able to stop it. If he's all good, he would. And yet he doesn't. So the skeptics say he's either not any of these three, all of these three, or he does not exist. Uh, They've got a point here. So in other words, if God... In other words, if he's all-knowing, like the Bible says, 1 John tells us he knows everything, then God would have known the tornado was going to hit Mayfield. And if he's all-powerful, like the Bible says, great is our Lord, abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure, then he has the ability to stop the tornado. If he's all-loving, like the Bible says, 1 John tells us a couple times, God is love. The psalmist said his steadfast love endures forever forever. If that's the case, then he would stop the tornado. But he didn't. And people died. Therefore, some would claim an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God cannot exist. Put another way, um, the philosopher Epicurus, he put it like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent or or all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent or wicked. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Then why does evil happen? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? There is clearly a problem here that we need to reconcile as believers. Can God be all-powerful, all-knowing, all loving, all good, and allow evil and suffering to exist. This is the claim that Christians and skeptics have been debating for centuries. And I, a soon-to-be seminary graduate, am going to solve the problem of evil (laughs) for you all this morning. Aren't you glad you braved the snow to get here, right? However, just kidding, by the way. I want to graciously refute the claim that an omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God cannot exist because of evil and suffering. I want to do this by examining each of these attributes and provide us with a correct biblical understanding of each that reveals how we can acknowledge the depth. Of suffering and still uphold the Christian view of God's character. And I'm going to do this with some help from Christian philosopher and apologist, Dr. Peter Kreeft, who is a Yale graduate, current professor at Boston College. Got to give credit where credit's due. Attribute number one, God is all-powerful. And this is going to be a bit philosophical, but um, we're going to be able to to get through this together. The charge by skeptics is that God cannot be all-powerful and evil still exists makes sense. If he's all-powerful, he would stop evil. Evil exists, and thus God does not. Well, this is to drastically misunderstand God and misunderstand what it means for him to be all-powerful. What we mean is that God is all-powerful, is that he can do everything that is possible and everything that makes sense. So there are things that God can't do. Because he's all-powerful, there are things he can't do. He cannot create a self-contradiction. What do I mean by that? He cannot make a square circle, right? He can't make a round square. And he can't make a colorless color. So the classic Christian defense for God against the problem of evil is that it is logically impossible to have free will and no possibility of moral evil. God made human beings with free will and thus gave us the ability with that free will to either do good or evil with that free will. God did not create evil, but when he created people with free will, he created the potential that people would do evil things. It is us that actualizes that potential and suffering results. So the source of suffering is not God's power, but it is mankind's evil. It is mankind's abuse of their free will. Despite being all-powerful, God cannot create a world where free will exists, where you have free will and there is no possibility for evil and suffering. That is a self-contradiction. And some of you perhaps are wondering, then why didn't God just create a world without free will, right? Yeah, Yeah, you're right. It'd be a world without hate. It'd be a world without suffering. It would also be a world without love. Because love must involve a choice. But with the granting of the choice comes the possibility that some will instead choose hate. And when God created the garden from the very beginning was a choice. They could follow God, dwell with him, be his people, live in perfect harmony with God, with others, with nature, or they could defy him, turn away from him, rebel against him, and they chose the latter, as would we. So the blame for moral evil is not upon God, but it is upon us and our abuses of free will. So much of the pain in the world, is a result of human beings using their God-given freedom to hurt other people, to be selfish, to kill, to stray sexually, to be reckless. Now, this free will argument only resolves the problem of moral evil. Maybe you're wondering, well, what about famines, tornadoes? Those will be acknowledged in a resolution proposed in the following attributes. So number two, God is all-knowing. Here, the skeptic, like Ehrman's, claims that God cannot be all-knowing and evil still exists. If God is all-knowing, he would know the evil before it happens, be able to stop it. Evil happens, thus an all-knowing God does not. Again, this is to misunderstand God and his divine foreknowledge. If God is all-knowing, that means he knows the future just as he knows the past, just as he knows the present. And this, at the very least, implies that God is, can tolerate and allow present evil because he can see the future good that will result from it. This is at least intellectually possible. We may not like that, but just because God knows something will happen does not mean he is obligated or even should stop it. God in his omniscience knows the good that will result from evil and therefore, although hard for us to wrap our minds around and understand, sometimes it can even be a gracious thing that God allows these things to occur. God in his power and foreknowledge knows how the evil is going to result in good and thus he allows it. Let's look at this example in the Bible. For example, in the life of Joseph, Joseph is sold into slavery by his own family, betrayed by his own family, sold into slavery. God sees this, and yet God does nothing. Later, he becomes the servant of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife takes a liking to young Joseph. And she makes some advances. She tries to seduce him. He uh, does not engage. He refuses to participate. And for his honesty, for his integrity, he is rewarded with prison because she makes false accusations about him. God sees this, and yet God doesn't do anything. He allows it to happen. Joseph is a God-fearing man, loves God, has integrity, and for this he's given hate, betrayal, and jail time. However, because he's in jail, he meets a guy... And this guy later gets him connected to Pharaoh, and to make a very, very long story short, he becomes, Joseph becomes second in command only to Pharaoh, and under his leadership, he wisely rations the country's produce in preparation for a large famine, which then results in saving hundreds of thousands of people from starving. He later welcomes the family that betrayed him in Egypt, and he tells them, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God knew what was going to happen and God allowed Joseph to experience evil and suffering but because he knew that it would result in the greater good. This is the greater good theory. Although hard for us to understand and comprehend sometimes in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our suffering when we feel like God has abandoned us and feel like God has forgotten about us, it is possible that God is able to see into the future in his divine foreknowledge and he knows how he is going to turn about and bring about good even from the worst situations that you're facing. God allows and permits evil precisely because... He is all-knowing and knows ultimately the good that is going to result from it. Attribute number three, God is all good. The claim by skeptics goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, he could stop evil and he would. Evil exists and thus God is not all-loving. He's not all good. This for me is actually the most compelling case from skeptics like Airmen. In 1979, Elie Wiesel wrote a play, The Trial of God, which was later adapted into a movie called God on Trial, where he recounts an, uh, an event that he witnessed as a prisoner in Auschwitz, a Nazi concentration camp known for its brutality and being the responsible for death, the death of millions of Jewish people. This is what he said. The trial lasted several nights. Witnesses were heard, evidence was gathered, conclusions were drawn, all of which issued finally in a unanimous verdict. The Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, was found guilty of crimes against creation and humankind. The Jewish people awaiting their inevitable death decided to put God on trial because it seemed as though he was no longer all good, all powerful maybe, all knowing perhaps, But as they sat in their rat-infested bunks, starving to death, awaiting death by gas chamber, they unanimously concluded, God can't be, he just can't be all good. There's a case to be made here. However, upon further study, I've come to disagree with their verdict, and I would like to make an appeal. I do believe, even with the atrocities that happen, the unspeakable evil that exists, that God is still all loving and God is still all good. How? Well, first let's look at this idea of good. Good is a tricky word, right? Meaning, there is such a wide range of meaning even amongst people in here right now on what is good, what is good for people, and what people should do that is good. There's a wide range of beliefs on that. So if there's a divide amongst fallen, sinful, broken people, imagine how vast the gap is between our view of good and God's view of good. For example, when I was a kid, I remember asking many times for my mom to do my homework for me. In my head, it would be a very good thing for me if she did it, and it would be a very good thing for her if she did that. However, my mother did not see it that way and she would assist me in doing my homework and in my seven-year-old brain though, that was not good of her to not do my homework and then she had the audacity to make me sit down and do that when I wanted to play, right? What I deemed was good was not what she had deemed what was good, But ultimately, she made me sit there, do my homework, which led to me passing first grade. Come on, somebody. And then, I know, I did it. I did it. Some of you are wondering. I did it. And then high school, and then college, and then soon I'll have my master's degree at the end of May. Come on. Praise the Lord. But if I got my way, and what I deemed was good happened, I wouldn't have done my homework, which then I would not have done well in school, but my mother knew better than me. And she knew that what I didn't like was actually good for me. And it was because she loved me that she made me suffer. Another example, when I was a child, um, I was really sick. I had lots of health issues, which meant that I had to go to the doctor's office often. And I would cry and I would scream and my mother would drag me kicking and screaming How embarrassing, right? She was always so embarrassed. And I had no shame as a little kid. I would just cry and scream. And I would cry and scream. My mother would drag me in there kicking and screaming. And it seemed like a really mean thing for her to do. I didn't want to do it. And it didn't seem good to me, but she would make me go. She would physically take me in there, right? And it was actually a loving thing. I just couldn't see that in my little child brain. And often I needed to get shots and I hated shots. Oh, I hated shots so much. And my mom and nurses would physically have to hold me down so that the doctors could give me a shot. I mean, my mom and the nurses would literally have to physically hold my squirming body as I'm screaming and shouting, right? And in my head, as a child, I'm being tortured, all Right. And my mom is betraying me and helping these villains hold me down. Okay. And now there's this big man with a a long needle and he's going to stab me with it. No, thanks. That sounds pretty evil to me. It did not seem good. Was that the reality though? Yes and no. Right. It was for me in my little kid brain. It was not good, but in their minds, they knew better as my mom and health professionals that what looked like torture and suffering and was evil and scary was actually them loving me and saving my life. Yeah. Dentists, athletic trainers, teachers, parents, we all know that sometimes growth and health requires pain and suffering. We know that moral character gets formed through hardships, through overcoming obstacles, through persisting and fighting through difficulties. The Apostle Paul knew this very well. He was imprisoned multiple times, beaten within an inch of his life multiple times, and then later executed. And he wrote, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Our old friend James he wrote count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing you learn to ride a bike by falling and scraping your knee you learn to love by having your heart broken you build muscle right by first breaking it down and now you say, okay, Scarlett, that's nice and happy, right? But what about evil people? Evil people get away with evil things all the time. Why does God allow that to happen? Well, to that I would say justice delayed is not justice denied. The day is coming where God is going to hold people responsible for the evil things that they have done in this world. They will be put on trial, found guilty, and sentenced for the evil and suffering that they have caused. And those who suffer will be vindicated and they will be comforted. But back to our point, to criticize God for not doing things right now because we've deemed it good and our finite brains is like reading a book and then getting mad at the author for not resolving the conflict in the middle or the beginning of the story. The author resolves the conflict at the end when the author deems that the story is finished. And in fact, God is actually delaying that very moment. Why? So that more and more people can follow the clues and find him. And why would he do that? Because he is all-loving and he desires that all people come to repentance and know him. Second Peter 3:9 says this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Pain sometimes is a megaphone, and God desires for you to come to him and to know him and to repent. And the great apologist tells us, C. S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, and he shouts in our pain. Sometimes God uses a megaphone of pain to get the attention of a deaf world, and it is precisely because he loves you. And repentance leads to life, to blessing, to joy, to hope, to eternal life with our all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing Father in heaven. So over the last half hour, I'm a bit over time, I've showed you how you can acknowledge the existence and depth of suffering while also upholding the character of God. The Christian view of God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving. But I don't want to conclude here because to stop here would be almost to say that God sees your suffering, is okay with suffering, or that he doesn't care about your suffering. But I want you to know that God weeps over the suffering in the world and God is not okay with it. He looks at the world and he thinks this is not the way that it's supposed to be. He created us to live in perfect harmony with him and with others. That is what he desires and God hates suffering and he hates the evil that exists in the world because it hurts the people that he loves so much. And Bart Ehrman In his book, he writes, as I look at all the atrocities, I want to know, God, why don't you do something about it? And to him, I would say, well, let's go to the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We love this verse, but do we know really what this means and what this entails? Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. And it says this, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. All hail, king of the Jews, they said. And then they spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again and again and again and again. And And they mocked him. And they took off the robe and they put his old clothes back on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. Which entailed his body, his arms being hammered into a block of wood where he would hang for hours. Jesus, the God that we serve, is well acquainted with suffering. God sent his son Jesus into the world to take upon himself the sins of the world, the suffering in the world, the pain of the world, to take that upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God. What looked like the greatest tragedy and the greatest act of suffering in human history turned out to be the greatest act of victory and the greatest act of something that accomplishes the greatest good of all time, and that was the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revelation of God to humans, and in Jesus, we can see how God deals with the world and how God relates to it. He relates to it by suffering for it. Jesus did not overtake the Romans with an army, but he suffered hours and hours of torture. He was beat, mocked, humiliated, held down and had nails hammered into his flesh and his bone. And he was left hanging by his mutilated limbs on a cross where he died broken, torn apart and naked. And he has done this. For us, the prophet Isaiah tells us he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, with his wounds, we're healed. Peter tells us, for Christ suffered once for sins. He took upon himself the suffering of the world on the cross. Every rape, every murder, every disease, every hurt, every bit of shame and guilt. And he bore that pain and he bore that punishment for you and for me. And Jesus didn't just suffer and die, but he rose again victoriously. Come on, somebody, conquering sin and death. And suffering and evil. And he gives us the hope for the life to come. That things, all things are going to be made new. And restored. So why has God, what what has God done about suffering? He has given it an expiration date. God's word says he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Suffering and evil, I want to tell you this morning, will pass away. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. He says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God that we serve. Not only does he weep with us in our suffering, but he has entered into it and he has done something about it. To those of you experiencing pain and suffering and you're wondering what kind of God would allow this to happen to me. He is the God who entered into sin. He entered into this brokenness. He entered into suffering. And he gave your suffering an expiration date. And he dealt with suffering by suffering both for you and with you. And he is the one who is with you right now. He's not far off. He's not distant. God showed us how He relates to suffering and He is with us in it. He is in the fire with you right now and He is weeping with you. And to the skeptics, to Bart Ehrman, if you're watching, I want you to know that God is not okay with the suffering so much so that He actually did do something about it. He bled. And he wept and he conquered it for you. And when I was in in Mayfield, there was this really cool uh, thing. We got a photo we're gonna show you. It makes me cry every time. Jesus doesn't explain away suffering, but he's with us in it. And God doesn't abandon us in our suffering and in our pain, but he works through it. God didn't abandon Mayfield. In your suffering, God is working in it and he can turn all things for good for those who love him. Our God is the God who enters into suffering, who works in suffering and he conquers our suffering. And maybe right now, your suffering, and you're hurting and you think God is, is far off and, and we're going to sing another song and, and I want you to know it's okay to lament it's okay to be sad it's okay to acknowledge the depth of suffering but know that God agrees with you this is not the way that it's supposed to be And so during this last song if you've been through something as God has brought you onto the other side of it I want you to sing this with all of your heart that the son of suffering that our, his cross is our freedom that his stripes his wounds are our healing let's believe that here in this place so our team is going to lead us in a song and then I'll be back up